Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. everyone and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today we will be talking to a very special guest, Dr. Stephen Clasco. He is the president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health and has been named by Modern Healthcare as one of the 100 most influential people in healthcare. He is here today to talk about his very amazing and unique new book, Bless This Mess, a picture story of healthcare in America. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. It's an honor to be on. It's, it's great to be uh, featured with the uh, New Books Network. I want to start by saying that I am so excited to have you on the show today. Your book is very different than anything else I've ever had on my show. It, it looks like a kid's book and has illustrations and everything, but it's not a kid's book. I started reading the book and thought, wow, this takes everything wrong in healthcare and explains it in a very simple way so that even uh, people outside of the healthcare industry can understand it. I actually showed the book to some of my colleagues and they were super impressed with it and they fell in love with this too. Uh, this is a book that I think absolutely everyone has to see in person and you know, unfortunately a podcast where you can't see it and flip through it uh, won't do it justice, but uh, we'll do our best. I tell you what, would you be able to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Sure. Um, I probably have a non-traditional uh, background for a healthcare executive, but um, she started my career as a disc jockey uh, through a series of events, ended up in medicine, uh, became an obstetrician gynecologist, and delivered a couple thousand babies in a place called Allentown, Pennsylvania. Then actually uh, moved up in academic career, became a chair of, uh, of OBGYN, uh, and then got tired of doctors whining about business. So got my MBA at uh, Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania and got a million dollar or so grant to look at what makes doctors different than depending on the audience, either other people or normal people, in how we handle uh, change. Then became dean of a couple of different medical schools, and I, I had the chance to uh, win a search to take over a 194-year-old academic medical center, one of the top places in the country in Philadelphia, that has been, a, frankly, a pretty conservative place. And I said, as long as you let me run it like a startup company, uh, I'm in. And uh, that's what we've done in the last four years. We've uh, quadrupled in size, gone from a two-hospital system to a 14-hospital system, merged with a fashion design and architecture university, and are now one of the top 20 uh, uh, hospitals and health centers in the country. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on, on some of the things that might make Jefferson Health special? Yeah, I, I think I think what we've um, what we've tried to look at is um, so I had a chance to spend some time with Apple uh, with iTunes U Health and the genius of Apple in the pre iPhone era was um, the ability of Steve Jobs and people like John Couch to look at what's going to be obvious ten years from now and do it today. And every once in a while, an industry goes through a once in a multi generational change. What 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 frankly Dell and others hadn't realized that their their industry was going through a once in a multi-generational change from computer industries to digital lifestyle. So while everybody was thinking of making smaller laptops or different operating systems for Windows, they were they were building the iPods and getting ready for the digital lifestyle. What we've recognized is that we're going through a once in a lifetime change from a business to business model to a business to consumer model. Uh, from the physician administrator is the boss to the patient is the boss. Some of it is the millennials, some of it is the fact that everything we've done hasn't worked. And, and the simple fact is <laughs> we've tried to double down just like Gateway did in the computer industry on the old way. And, you know, I compare it to retail. I compare it to, you know, uh, the computer industry. When Amazon came onto the retail scene, there were some people that said, I'm going to be all Amazon. Some people like Macy's, Sears, and Penny said, this is a fad. And Target and Walmart said, well, we're really good at stores, but we're really going to be as innovative as Amazon. And um, that's the model that we've tried to go. We're, we're a great academic medical center. We do transplants. We do everything like that. We're never going to be all virtual. But we want to be the coolest place in the planet, what we call healthcare with no address. We want five years from now, Jeremy, that if you come here from where you are and, and you ask somebody where's, where's um, Jefferson, that they can't answer that. I said, what do you mean, Jefferson on my TV or Jefferson one of 12 micro hospitals or, or Jefferson in, uh, in, in my iPhone? The fact is that we're defined by the care, the caring, and the expected patient experience that they get, not by our real estate. What inspired you to write this book? And, and I guess what made you decide to have it look and feel like an illustrated kid's book? Well, so I'll answer the first question first. Um, I, I just frankly get sick and tired of 
being involved in an ecosystem, the healthcare ecosystem that is clearly broken and having people just consistently defend it and talk about how impossible or complicated it is. There's a great, great quote, two great, great quotes I use all the time from the NBA, and since we're in the middle of the NBA Finals, it's a good time to, to talk about it. Pat Riley uh, said, you know, the thing about losing teams is they spend a lot more time talking about why they're losing than what it would take to win. That's what you hear from healthcare all the time. Well, you, you know, whether it's Republicans or Democrats or providers or insurers or farmers, this is why we can't change. And there's another great quote from Jason Kidd when he took over the Dallas Mavericks that said, um, I'm going to turn this team around 360 degrees. <laughs> we do a lot of turning things around 360 degrees in healthcare. So I realized that, that the things that would have to change in healthcare are not that complicated, but they're difficult. And really what we should say is we don't want to do the difficult things. And, and this is what I would say. The Affordable Care Act, Jeremy, did exactly the job we asked it to do. Gave a lot more people access to a fragmented, broken, expensive, inequitable, and occasionally unsafe healthcare delivery system and hoped that the healthcare delivery system would transform. And we didn't. And the only difference between Democrats and Republicans is we have a dollar to pay for a dollar and a quarter. Democrats said, boy, I don't want to do the painful things with insurers, pharma, how we pay doctors, end of life issues. So I'll just give everybody a quarter. Well, that's unsustainable. Republicans said, well, we don't want to do the difficult things either, but we don't just give people money, so we'll just cut 20% of the people off. So I had written two previous books, one called The Phantom Stethoscope, which was really directed toward doctors, and the concept was a, a medical student got abducted by aliens on the day of the residency match. And she came back 20 years later, and they re-implanted the technical knowledge, but none of the business, legal, ethical, or social knowledge. So the pre, it was a half science fiction, half business book written with a guy from Wharton that basically this is what we should, forgot to teach in medical school. And my second book, uh, which was just published about a year, a year and a half ago, was called We Can Fix Healthcare of the Futures Now. That predicted that President Obama, right as he was leaving office, got all of us together and said, look, I created the bill. You guys didn't change. Why don't you all get together and figure this out? I'm leaving office. And we do what we do best. We blame everybody that wasn't us. The providers blame the chores, the chores blame farmer, everybody blames the lawyers. Um, and there was a science fiction event with a blackout and a vapor, and we woke up, and all we could do was look in the mirror and say, no, actually, this is what I could do. Interestingly, came from 150 interviews. With, we, said, we said, we're you're a CEO of a pharma company. We're not going to use your name. But if you weren't in your current job, how could you change things? They gave us some very honest answers. And we came up with the 12 disruptors for the demise of the old healthcare that both the Republicans and the Democrats used as a common healthcare platform in this fictional 20, 2016 election. In fact, the first chapter was called 2016 when politics and healthcare became fun again. So Sanjay Gupta said it. You can tell it's a science fiction book. And, and, and that, that got a lot of attention. But this book came out of a group of talks that I give around the country called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Healthcare Galaxy. <laughs> do you remember Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I do. It I love it. A, good book. Yeah, yeah. So it was, a, you know, it was a parody of people from another galaxy coming here and saying, boy, you know, uh, of all the places we visited in, uh, in, in the galaxy, um, this place really is pretty eccentric. Um, so th that's the talk that I gave. It's 2028. You know, this is what happened in 2018. So I gave that talk, and um, there was an illustrator, Chrissy Bonner, incredibly talented illustrator, one of those people that while you're talking, amazingly comes up with a room-sized illustration, set of illustrations. She 
she actually gifted it to me. And in the corner, and I had never used this word, was a, a, a kid reading a book called Bless This Mess, Healthcare in America. When she gifted me the illustration, she just said, we ought to write this book, sort of half as a joke. And her and my, my editor, Michael Ho, said, why not? So we started to do that. And it, it gave me the ability to really look at all the absurdities of healthcare that frankly, if I just put them down seriously, I'd probably not ever have a job in healthcare again <laughs> because A, they're true, but B, you know, it really does bring out all the absurdities in healthcare in a way that lay people can, can fix. But it's hard to get too mad because the solutions don't necessarily blame anybody, but they talk about what's been done in other planets that have gotten to the Intergalactic Council of Cool Healthcare Systems before the United States. So, at worst, you can think I'm crazy, uh, but it's hard for people to take a good-natured book like that and say, you know, it was mean-spirited. And by the way, I believe, having been in this business for 35 years, as a private doc, as a dean, as a chair, uh, as somebody that's done a couple of startup companies, uh, there's nothing in it that isn't true, both as a patient and as a provider. Having the book look and feel like a children's book while being funny and, and a lighthearted satire of the American healthcare industry was brilliant, in my opinion. I've never seen anything like it before. That being said, have you faced any criticism for taking such a serious topic and presenting it in this way? Well, you know, I faced a lot of criticism. Um, Less for that, actually, Jeremy, and more for everybody protecting their space. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, insurers will say, "Well, we understand why you, you know, you you railed against providers and pharma, but how dare you say this about us?" Right. Right. You know. Now, again, and and some of it is individual. I, was, I have a I have a really good friend in the pharma industry that you know really appreciated the book. Look, I think that for anybody to say that we're doing a good job in the provision of healthcare, they'd have to be on crack. <laughs> so, the, so, so the simple fact is, for anybody to say, how dare, how dare you, you know, intimate that what we're doing today isn't perfect, you know, I, I laugh at. The issue of putting it in a non-serious way and making light of some serious topics I view it as an opening to a conversation uh, that allows us to to get together and say, all right, you know, this is a serious topic, darn it. And um, I, I almost view it as popping the abscess and saying, all right, now we need to put the antibiotics on it. So, you know, look, I think, um, I, what's the old thing? Heck with you if you can't take a joke. I mean, at the end of the day, the ability to, to be offended or like my book is somewhat based on, I would argue, whether or not you have a sense of humor about yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The very first sentence of the book sets the tone for the whole book, and I'm actually going to read it. We begin with shocking news. It's 2035, and the Intergalactic Health Council has invited the United States of America to join the council as an exemplar of great health care for all its people. Can you please talk to us a bit about the future of uh, the United States healthcare and uh, why we were invited to the Intergalactic Health Council? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. I think what I believe happened in 2019 that got us to 
miraculously get invited to the uh, Intergalactic Council. Uh, you know, it'd be like you know, it'd be like one of the countries that we now view as a bad human rights abuser being invited to you know lead the United Nations. We we entered into this before your time, Jeremy. But there was a movie called Network where there's a great line: "I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore." That we entered into this, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And it didn't come from the healthcare industry. It started in 2019 with Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire saying, I'm mad as hell that the only thing that our employees are stuck in the 90s is healthcare. And we don't believe that you're going to solve the problem anymore. That's a direct quote from those guys. It started, you know, with, um, Folks like Intermountain Healthcare saying, we're mad as hell that generic drug companies are, are driving up prices. And then it started with millennials, where technology over loyalty is what it is, is saying, wait, how come the day after Thanksgiving, I can be in my pajamas watching Game of Thrones, doing all my holiday shopping, but if I have a stomach ache, I got to get on the phone, listen to 11 options to get an appointment next Wednesday. I'm not going to take that anymore. So, so the issue is that it started that consumers, patients, and employers and others finally recognized that the healthcare ecosystem was never going to solve their own problems because they had no reason to. And they basically said, we're going to take some of it into our own hands and reward the places that are willing to be disruptive. So it started with some leaders, people like John Scully, uh, former CEO of Apple, saying things like, stop talking about telehealth as a gimmick. We don't talk about telebanking. We don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to telebank. <laughs> we just, banking turned into a situation with some leaders that started it by making it incredibly easy to do it at home. That will happen with healthcare. It started with some leaders saying, you know, what defines a not-for-profit healthcare system if you're in a city like Philadelphia where we have six not-for-profit academic medical centers and a not-for-profit insurer, but you have the highest degree of health disparities and health inequities in the country. So don't say you care about health inequities when, when your healthcare CEOs are all getting paid on whether or not they have a bigger MRI than their competitor. You know, so it started with literally, like most other consumer efforts, with some grassroots efforts and some companies and some, some providers and some insurers doing some really cool things. It started with some very creative partnerships. It started in 2019 with an announcement that a major venture capitalist out of Silicon Valley was going to partner with a major, let's say, theoretic 195-year-old academic medical center to fundamentally take the best of Silicon Valley and the best of provision to really create a layer uh, over electronic medical records that can actually create an app store type uh, decision support. So just as with Amazon changing retail or the travel industry changing, it happens sort of surreptitiously. Right? Nobody, nobody was all that impressed when Sabre started online um, a travel piece or even when Expedia or Travelocity started. But there was a tipping point where that became the norm and that every airline recognized that they had to do that. Right? Mm -hmm. Amazon was losing money when they were selling books. So it became a tipping point where people said, wow, this is, this is the way to do it. We believe, I believe, that uh, we are starting that tipping point. 
And the reason, you know, that, that we put 2035 out there is it's not like that's when things are going to suddenly change. But to actually, actually recover the hundred years of progress that the other planets that we talk about in the book at the end, uh, the fact that we were able to reach that tipping point and just become so cool in 17 years uh, is what was incredible about the United States healthcare story. In the book, one of the things I thought was pretty cool was you compared two famous TV doctors, House MD and Marcus Welby MD. Can you please talk about this comparison for our listeners and how we select our doctors here in the United States? Sure. So, um, so, so first let me talk about the context because my guess is that most of your listeners, if not all of them, are younger than I am. So if you think about doctor shows on TV, it's generally 20-somethings basically writing about their perception, right? So in my generation, the TV shows were Marcus Welby and Dr. Kildare. Now, Marcus Welby was a family doc who would get up in the morning, go to the homeless shelter, take care of people for free. On the way home to lunch, a cow would be having trouble delivering a calf. He'd deliver it. He'd go to his family medicine office in the afternoon and then do left ventricular neurosurgery at night and hold the family's hand. We were empathetic gods that could do everything. Fast forward to the 2010s, what do you have? Grey's Anatomy, House. So if you came down from Mars, you'd think we were really, really smart, analytic, could memorize a lot of stuff, drug-addicted, narcissistic, maybe sex-addicted folks who really aren't very good at communicating. So one of the articles I've written previously is from Marcus Welby to House. How did we get there? Well, the answer to how we got there is, believe it or not, in 2018, we still admit students into medical school, pretty similar to how we admitted students into medical school back when, uh, when I was there in the 70s. We admit kids based on science, GPA, MedCats, and organic chemistry grades, and somehow we're amazed doctors aren't more empathetic, communicative, and creative. Now, why that's so ridiculous in 2018 and maybe not so ridiculous in, in 1978 is that if I could memorize 19 reasons you had a headache, Jeremy, I was a better doctor than the other doctor that could only memorize 15. Now the 19 are on my supersized iPhone, and half the doctors we admit in this country can't see different shades of yellow or can't communicate. So we recognize that the technology has come to the point where those aren't the most important things. And actually, we started the first medical school in the country where we, in essence, erased the, the uh, objective criteria after certain minimums, partnered with places like Southwest Airlines and the people that interview for Google because they get it, and said, um, uh, we're going to choose you based on self-awareness, empathy, communication skills, cultural competence. And here's what's cool about it. There's a great quote from Jack Ma at the World Economic Forum where he, where he talked about humans and robots. And he said, when we created cars, we didn't try to get folks to run faster than cars. When we created planes, we didn't try to get humans to fly. He said, computers will always be smarter than people. Certainly, computers will always be smarter than doctors, but they will never be as wise. So the fact is that it's ridiculous to select and educate docs to be better robots than robots, especially when there's going to be robots next to us. 
So, so, so we've really created a whole different model of both the curriculum and how we select docs to really emphasize the human. By the way, when you do that, you double or quadruple the d- diversity of, of your class. So let's, let's focus a little bit on that patient experience piece. Uh, when someone orders something from Amazon, they look at their email receipt, it makes sense. But when they get a medical bill in the mailbox, they open it, and it makes no sense. Might as well be in a foreign language. I know you've probably had this experience. I've had this experience where a friend or family member comes up and like, hey, you know, I know you work in healthcare. Can you explain what this bill I got in the mail means to me or why I owe this or why isn't this covered? And then we have to walk them through it. And then you have the millennials who typically don't even open their mail, but then they're like fresh off their parents' insurance, first major medical incident, and they're like, hey, I have insurance. Why do I have a bill for $1,200? Like, well, because actually you have this thing called a deductible. You do owe $1,200. These bills might as well be in a foreign language. How is this still happening? What is what you call a, a BUB or a BUB, and how is that the holy grail in healthcare? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. The thing that got us over the top for the, you know, the Intergalactic Council's version of the Academy Awards was the fact that we finally figured out the BUB factor, the believable, understandable bill. And the reason that that's so important is it brings in so many things. It's transparency. It's getting rid of the ludicrous way that we, we, we pay for things. So, so there's a couple, again, I, I know I've used this word a couple of times, but it's most accurate descriptors. There's a couple of absurd things about how healthcare is financed. First of all, it's the curse of OPM. OPM is other people's money, right? Uh, do you have any kids, Jeremy? I have one. He's two. Okay, well, you're probably not giving him your credit card yet. But uh, so I have I have three grown kids. A little parental advice: when when your kid uh, is that age and you give him your credit card, to so give him your credit card with a twenty thousand dollar limit, and and tell him please don't spend more than a hundred dollars. There's a zero point zero percent chance he'll spend a hundred dollars. If we give him a hundred dollar debit card, you know he'll be darn close to a hundred dollars. The fact is that we run healthcare on other people's money. That we're the only system in the world or the galaxy in my book where the people that pay for the care, the people that provide the care, and the people that get the care never talk to each other and really aren't responsible for each other. I mean, just think about how absurd that is in your Amazon example. You have this group of people called insurers that are this big blob that really the employers sign on with on behalf of their patients, basically pay the money to the insurers. The patients really get that benefit. They only have the relationship with the provider. The provider has no relationship with the people that are paying the money, which is really the employers. They only have the relationship with the insurer. So, you know, if if you ran a 7-Eleven or Wawa like that, you'd get a ridiculous bill. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that nobody's ever called us on it, partly because of other people's money. And the third issue is that, frankly, we don't care (laughs) because we've lived in a world where I'm the doctor, you're lucky to see me, and patients, for whatever reason, and this is the one thing I still can't figure out, is have tolerated that in their in their um, consumer life that they haven't tolerated in any other part of their life, right? So if you go to an office and wait an hour, I mean, 
you'll do that because you assume that the doctor must have been in an emergency. Well, that's probably true in a minority of the cases, but the majority of the cases, that doctor just knows that, you know, he can come in or she can come in an hour late and you'll still say, oh, it's okay. My guess is if you wait for an hour for your hoagie at the Wawa, that's not going to be okay. <laughs> you know, the believable understandable bill is a metaphor for everything that's wrong in patient experience. And I do put some of the blame on the patients that they tolerate. I did a consulting thing for an unnamed OBGYN group where, where um, a patient, they had a patient complaint that, that the patient was sitting in the room for a half hour and, and she was listening to her doctor making a golf tea time. Wow. And without my intervention, the way that that practice would have handled it because they were going through patient complaints was, well, maybe we should move the phone further away from the patients. <laughs> so the fact is there's no other entity that requires, that, that, that deals with, with humans that would still be in business doing that. I made a statement in an interview that got a lot of controversy, but on, under context, it's correct that in some respects, patients have too much respect for the healthcare system. And that is, Patients have to question anything that doesn't make sense to them. So if every time you got a ridiculous 87-page bill that might as well have been written in a different language, you say, I want you to explain every part of this bill. My son's an actor. He had a food poisoning incident in New York City. He got a bill for... Um, something like $5,000. He didn't have insurance. And he went in with a camera crew to that hospital and asked them to explain the bill. <laughs> and it was, thing, it was things, Jeremy, like, you know, you know he, had, he felt better after the IV, first IV. And, you know, despite the fact that they charged him like $700 for an IV that might cost $35, beyond that sort of Pentagon charging thing, um, they literally had a thing where he said, I feel better now. And they said, yeah, let's give you another IV. He said it would be like if you were at Applebee's and you had dessert. He said, we want to give you another dessert. He said, well, I don't really, I'm not hungry for another dessert. Now we want to give you another dessert. And by the way, we're going to charge you for it. I mean, so, so it, it, it's those kind of things that we're not going to have that tipping point till A, patients start saying, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And B, the providers, the insurers, the hospitals, the pharma companies that say, well, we're willing like Target and Walmart did, to start to give the consumers what they want. And then the other places, frankly, go bankrupt. We need to see some hospitals and providers and insurers really not do well mm -hmm. because they're not able to provide that customer service because that's what's happened in every other, um, in every other industry. One of the things that I, I actually find interesting when we talk about this is, I don't know if it, it made somewhat local news, maybe a little bit national news, in Louisiana uh, last year, a charge master got leaked to the public, and there was all this local news outrage down there and everything like that, and it's like, you know, for the consumer, if you don't understand these things, you can't do anything about it, you can't complain about it, you can't make a big stink about it, but, you know, as, an, as a consumer, it's it's on them to be more educated, more responsible, and yet you talk about how, you know, you find hope in two things everybody hates, the high deductible health plans and millennials. Can you talk about that? Yeah, look, I, I, think, I think the reason they're, they're both important is, you know, I think where we will head to is that your monthly bill will be lower. 
and your deductible will be higher. And then what we can do is for the real underserved, we can just have a situation where we pay for that deductible. But the, the issue is once it's your dollars, then basically you're going to look at it differently. I, I give the example of my daughter who called me one time. She was 29 at the time. She worked. At, she literally worked at a university hospital. And she had an insurance plan where I think most things are going to go, about $250 a month with a $3,000 deductible. She's a public health professional. She made about $65,000 at that time. So that's a lot of money. And um, she said, Dad, uh, and this was, by the way, a hospital, university hospital system that I had been part of. She said, Dad, look, I need a small procedure. Don't worry. It's $800 of my money if I had it have it done at the place, the university hospital you were at, $200 of my money if I have it done at this other hospital outside of the city. And before I could say anything, she said, that's $600. That's a weekend in Miami, dude. I said, well, I know that. Uh, she said, oh, and by the way, I went on healthgrades.com. They have the same grade. Oh, I went on leapfrog.com. They have the same amount of errors. Oh, dad, one more thing. I went on patientslikeme.com. Um, did you know that the hospital that I'm thinking of, the waiting rooms are cleaner and the staff is friendlier than the hospital you were associated with. Now, what were you going to tell me? <laughs> That's what's going to happen. I'm, 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 I've been asked to be on the board of a company that's doing Match.com between obstetric patients and providers. Think about obstetric patients. My, my specialty. They're, you know, they're, tw- they're in their 20s, right? When you just had a baby uh, a couple years ago. It, the traditional way is you'd find out you're pregnant. You'd go to your 60, you know, four-year-old primary care provider who would say, Mrs. Smith, congratulations, you're pregnant. I'm sending you to my obstetrician. Now, my generation would say, thank you very much. Now, a 25-year-old patient would say, well, you know, that, that's fine. You know, that might be who you'd go to if you're pregnant. You're probably not going to get pregnant. You're a male family doc. But, um, you know, there's seven or eight things I need. So I'll tell you what, why don't you give me a few names? But I want a predominantly female group. I can only be seen on Fridays. You know, I want somebody to accept my door. Uh, you know, um, you know, I have Aetna Gold. I want somebody where I want to pay more than $1,000 deductible. So we've created a, a match.com. Um, between obstet- obstetricians and those, perp- and so what it'll be. I met my wife on Match.com. You know, she wrote a very accurate profile. Mine was sort of accurate, <laughs> and um, uh, in today's uh, world, and you know, this will be. Hi, I'm a, a newly pregnant patient from Iowa. I have no complications. Uh, I live in Des Moines. I'm looking for a group that will accept my door, predominantly female, et cetera, et cetera. And the providers will have an opportunity to say, you know, yes, I can do eight of those nine things. And then you'll have the opportunity to be transparent about costs, to be transparent about what other patients have said about you. To, and just like with Match.com, you had your choice of putting your picture out there or not. The fact is, if you didn't put your picture out, the chances of you getting, quote, chosen, you know, were, were small. <laughs> Same thing. If a doctor says, well, I don't want you to see my costs or I don't want you to see what other patients said about me, then they're probably not going to get chosen. What's fascinating, Jeremy, is I go around the country talking about that concept. I say half the doctors say, I'll be darned if I will ever do that. That's not what I go, went to medical school. I'd rather stop being a doctor than have to live in that world. I have the other half doctor saying, that is really cool. But it doesn't matter what the doctors think. It is the world we're going to live in because it just makes way too much sense. And the reason I I made the statement that sometimes we have too much respect, God forbid if somebody in your family has pancreatic cancer, you know what? There's only one or two people to go to in Philadelphia. And I don't care how they frankly treat you or how long you wait in the waiting room. 
a healthy patient delivering a baby, I'm not saying it doesn't matter who your doctor is, but there are probably 60 doctors in Philadelphia, including myself, that will do a great job. So, so the service really matters. So let's get back to, you know, the overall grade that this Intergalactic Health Council would give the United States in 2018. How do you think they would look at us in 2018? What kind of a score would they give us? And what on earth would happen between now and 2035 to get us there? And how realistic do you think that is? I think um, if you look at, at a reasonable scoring in 2018, there would be a tripartite score between uh, technology and care of the individual, health equities, and patient experience slash cost slash access, what, what, what would commonly be called value. I'd say the United States healthcare system would get an A in technology, and if you have unlimited money and the care you can get, I think we'd get a uh, D plus in equities and probably a D minus in that cost access, patient experience, quality continuum. The problem is the Intergalactic Council didn't really look at the focus on the individual and, and just what technology existed. They looked at the latter two in 2018. And that's what was so that that's that's what was so amazing about our getting inducted is that we we did the things to start to even out the equities. We did the things to fundamentally not just change but disrupt the patient experience for all and move you know by twenty twenty two for example thirty five percent of all healthcare was done at home with with hospitals at home. By 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 the time we got uh, inducted into Intergalactic Healthcare Council, other than surgery, almost all healthcare was at home or no more than five minutes away from where you were. Nobody drove an hour to spend 35 minutes uh, to park unless unless you needed something that that really required a hands-on uh, a piece. And even with robotic surgery, some of the technology that changed. And the fact is that literally, just like industries. In other areas, went out of business. A lot of very storied hospitals, insurers, and other parts of the healthcare ecosystem went out of business uh, because because of those grades. I think that's that that's what happened is that we didn't give up on the things that we do well, which is really develop technology, etc. But we really moved into an era where the patient was the boss and we're willing to get over ourselves and and work together to turn healthcare into what we were able to do successfully in retail, travel, and just about every other part of our consumer ecosystem. Well, Stephen, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, I got one final question for you. What are you working on now? So... Um, we're actually working on a sequel to the Phantom Stethoscope. This one will be a, a, a sort of a cross between consumers and providers. And, you know, the, the concept behind the Phantom Stethoscope, it was, um, I didn't have much of a life when I was a kid, so I, my favorite book was called The Phantom Tollbooth. And it was about this um, kid that went through a tollbooth and the whole world was 
topsy-turvy and it was a world of unlogic and ungeometry. And the concept of the phantom stethoscope is that most medical students, most nursing students, what they think they're going into healthcare uh, for and what they actually get, it's like going through the phantom toll booth. So, you know, the concept was a minute before the residency match, Myla, who was the protagonist, ended up getting abducted by aliens, and they bring her back 20 years later, and they reimplanted the technical knowledge, but none of the business, legal, ethical, or social knowledge. What we're going to do, Jeremy, is um, different phantom stethoscope where Myla, the doc, is now an attending. One of her residents and a patient all get abducted. And instead of bringing them back to Earth, they're actually going to take them to different planets that have figured out some of the problems and very seriously talk and actually do sort of manuscripts on how those different planets were able to solve some of the problems that existed in 2019 on the planet Earth. So we think it'll be a great book for both, you know, for both uh uh, people that are in the healthcare ecosystem, people that are thinking about the healthcare ecosystem, and consumers. And it'll be a fun book because, you know, again, the thing that was very cool about the Phantom Stethoscope, you could read the fiction, and the fiction was written in a different style than the, than the manuscript. You could read the fiction as a book, and we actually upside down, down the fiction. Or you could read the actual manuscripts as a book, um, and the manuscripts were used in MD, MBA courses. So we want to create that same kind of thing, that you can read the book just through, you can read the fiction, you can read the manuscripts, and you can use it as a reference. So that, that's, that's what we're working on now. That's awesome. So, you know, like we talked about before the, the show began, I'm, I, I like you, I'm a big sci-fi fan, so I, I'd love to have you back on to talk about that book. That'd be great. I'd be happy to do that. And I, as I said, I think uh, what you guys do is really a service, and I, uh, I really appreciate being, uh, being part of the podcast. Well, since we're, uh, we're both sci-fi fans, I feel like I should say goodbye by saying so long and thanks for all the fish. And I'll say uh, live long and prosper, Jeremy. All right. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye-bye.